During her eight years on the St. Louis Board of Aldermen, Megan Green raised a lot of eyebrows with allegations that not everything that happened was, quote, by the book. But those comments suddenly got a lot more attention when three of her colleagues faced federal corruption charges. The 15th Ward Alderwoman joins me next to talk about her decision to run for board president, setting a new tone at the board, and getting it ready to be a body of 14 rather than 28. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Rachel Lippman. And joining me in the studio this morning is... Megan Aaliyah Green, 15th Ward Alderwoman. She is also a candidate for president of the Board of Aldermen. Megan, this is your, I think, fourth time on the podcast. And since you were on last in 2019, you've officially become Dr. Megan Green. Remind me real quick what you studied for your Ph.D. So I studied education policy for my Ph.D. Specifically, I looked at the socioeconomic integration of St. Louis school districts as a tool for education reform. And you've added chickens, I think, to the the, the flock, metaphorically speaking, <laughs> since the last time. Yes, I now have five chickens, uh, Amelia Egghart. Uh, Ruth Bader Hensburg, Princess Leia, uh, a hen has no name, and Shirley Chickholm. And the alder dog, of course. Yes, Dewey the alder dog who loves tending to his chickens and protecting them. Kept me up last night uh, barking at a possum that was circling the coop, but, you know, he's really good at his job. Good job, Dewey. So you are running for a position that you will hold for at most four months before making the decision whether or not to run again. Why do you want this position for the sure amount of time you're going to have it? You know, I want this position because I think we need to build a St. Louis that works for everyone. And I think it's very clear, especially with the reasons we're having this uh, election, because of the federal indictments that came down that caused the resignation of uh, prior President Reed and two other aldermen, that we have had a board of aldermen that has not been working in the public interest and has not been working for the benefit of everyday folks in our city. I'm committed to change that. What would be your goals for the short time you would have in office, and can you get them done in four months, realistically? I mean, I I definitely think four months, uh, you know, is a challenge, but there's a lot of work that has to be done in that time. Uh, But a lot of work, I think, is already in progress that we can get done pretty quickly. You know, one thing... We obviously have to prepare the board for award reduction. You know, that's coming up in the the spring, and there's been very little uh, planning and preparation that has gone into determining what this is going to look like. You know, we're going to have to restructure the Board of Aldermen. We're going to have to redo our rules. We're going to have to reallocate how ward capital dollars are done. Um, There's a plethora of things that we have to do to make sure that this board can function uh, when we reduce down to 14 wards. 
The other thing that I think we can get in place during that time is a citywide plan for development. We saw uh, SLDC get out uh, the economic justice plan just a few weeks ago, which I think is the beginning of a roadmap for how we ensure that we have citywide planning so that developers know, you know, when they go into a certain area of the city, what they can qualify for in terms of tax incentives and what is the requirement going to be in terms of community benefits attached to the project. Uh, that's work that's already in process that I think we can get codified during that time. Weren't you going to run for this race in 2023? I was not planning on it, actually. Um, I I thought that I was going to sit it out, even though I was pretty close uh, back in 2019. But uh, the indictments came down and my phone started ringing off the hook. Uh, of, of folks saying, we need you to do this. You know, you've been calling out the corruption at City Hall for years, and you were right. It, you know, it's clear that, that you've had an understanding of what's actually been occurring at City Hall. Uh, and then the mayor called me, and the mayor said, hey, we need you to do this. Um, get ready to run. And, and so, you know, it, it's really hard to say no to the, the, the mayor when she's asking you to run for a position um, and asking you to work with her on something. And um, and so from there, I, I just started reaching out to folks that had supported me in the past and people who didn't support me in the past to, to figure out, is this something I should do? And overwhelmingly, people said, yes, you know, we need a, a fresh start down at the Board of Aldermen, and we know you can bring that. You and I both obviously hang out in some of the same spaces on Twitter and social media, and this race gets described as a whole bunch of <laughs> things in, you know, big, broad, sweeping terms. But I want to hear how, how you see this race. Like, how would you describe this to an alien who landed in St. Louis and had absolutely, you know, no social media presence here whatsoever? I really think this race boils down to being the people versus special interests. You know, I'm running with the support of over 40 organizations and individuals who have been endorsing and propelling our, our campaign, racial justice organizations, labor unions, uh, women's health organizations, uh, you know, a plethora of elected officials from across the region uh, because people want to see change and they want to see a St. Louis that works for everyone. Um, I'm funded by a very grassroots network of, of folks. I, I barely have any, if any, uh, real estate money that goes into my campaign coffers. And I think that's really important. Uh, you know, one of the biggest jobs that the Board of Aldermen has right now is overseeing the allocation of tax incentives or tax breaks to big corporations and developers. And my opponent works for a law firm whose job is to get tax breaks for their developer clients. He has a ton of conflicts of interest. And and I think we have to recognize that. You know, I, I think one of the things that embodies this the best is just a few weeks ago, you know, I went to Union Station Hotel to meet with the workers there that are trying to organize and unionize through the Unite Here Union. You know, I heard horrible stories about how uh, their, their, you know, tips got cut and, and given all to the house. Um, and the house told them it was so that they could afford to pay for the Ferris wheel and the uh, in the um, aquarium, things that we as a city gave Union Station tax breaks to be able to build. It was heartbreaking to hear this. 
Two weeks later, that developer then gave my opponent $50,000 to run his campaign. I mean, I think it's very clear. You know, one of us has continually stood on the side of workers, of working families, of folks in our city that don't always have a seat at the table. Um, and the other has continued to be on the side of major corporations, big developers, and special interests that have gotten us into the mess we're currently in at City Hall. It's certainly obviously a point of pride for you that you don't take the big corporate contributions, but realistically in a November general election with a high-powered Illinois governor's race, high-powered Senate race, U.S. Senate race, major um, U.S. House competitions in both Missouri and Illinois, financially are you going to have the resources to compete? Definitely. I mean, if you look at what... uh post-primary, what I've raised versus what my opponent has raised. I raised almost double what he raised, but we did it off off of small-dollar donations, donations from labor unions and racial justice organizations and women's health organizations. We didn't do it off of, you know, big developers that are inevitably coming back and asking for tax breaks in the city right now and in a couple months. The September election has a lot of caveats to its results, Um, you know, really didn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, hyper low turnout, few polling places. But are you looking at those results in any way and using it to shape your November race? You know, it was a really great poll for us, right, Um, because it could tell us where we were strong and, and where we were weak. And, and where we, you know, had opportunity to grow. And so it, we are able to shift our campaign to make sure that we are um, maintaining the strength in the areas that we need to maintain them while picking up votes in areas where there's opportunity for growth. And I think it had about the same sample size. It's a good poll, too. <laughs> yes, it's a, it probably a little bit bigger, bigger than a good, than a good, good poll, <laughs> but not by much. Yeah. You talked a lot about what the board of aldermen itself is and its main roles, but the role of the board president is pretty specifically laid out in the rules and in the charter. But regardless of that, how do you see the role of board president? What do you think it should be? So the board president has a couple of roles in my mind. You know, first, they set the legislative agenda for the board of aldermen. They assign people and bills to committees to determine the flow of legislation. And historically, we had a president that was not fair in committee assignments and really locked people, particularly progressives, off of committees that actually matter, like HUDs, Ways and Means, and Public Safety. You know, I am committed to changing that. I think we have to have fair committees that are representative of people uh, of different viewpoints, geography, racial backgrounds across the city. Um, The other thing the president does is sits on the board of estimate and apportionment with the mayor and the comptroller. And in that capacity, the president oversees all budget, contract, and real estate decisions. And and our, you know, budget priorities, I think, as a city have been off. We've continued to not invest in people, uh, particularly in things like health care and mental health and affordable housing, things that we know actually get to addressing the root causes of crime. And so as president, I actually would have the authority um, to sit on that board and help shape our budget priorities to make sure that they really represent what people in the city of St. Louis need. There, You have a reputation, perhaps unfairly in some circles, of not being able to build consensus across members of the board. And I wanted to give you a chance to respond to that criticism because part of setting the legislative agenda is being able to build the coalitions necessary to advance it. 
You know, I will say that that some of the challenges in the past were because we had a president and a few of his allies that just wanted to make sure that progressives, no matter what, could not be successful at the board and were intent in doing business in a way that was not in the benefit of the people. And I felt, and I still do, that you have a duty as an elected representative. If you see folks like our former president not behaving in the public interest, you have a duty to call that out. And, and I understand that doing so had some political costs for me. Um, but I think what we also see out of that is, is the folks that um, largely I have clashed with in the past are no longer on the board. And I think we have a great group of board members right now that want to get down to business, that want to put some of the petty politics behind and, and move forward. Uh, and I'm ready to do that. And I also want to be clear that, you know, we do have a pretty divided board. No matter who wins, um, the the new president is going to have their work cut out for them to really build some uh cooperation and some coalitions uh, across these different factions that have not always gotten along. Um, but I have a background in that. I was a Coro fellow who was trained in consensus building and I'm optimistic that I can set the appropriate culture for the Board of Aldermen so we can rally around a collaborative legislative agenda. So we are taping this episode two days after a tragic school shooting that took place across the street from your ward. And I wanted to give you a moment to address that situation. I mean, in so it was one of the most heartbreaking, I think, days or situations in my entire tenure as an elected official. Um, you know, it's the news that nobody ever wants to get. And, you know, I felt myself coming out of that being extremely frustrated and even angry at the situation. You know, we're at a place right now where um, the Republican General Assembly in Missouri has prohibited us locally from enacting any gun laws. You know, they even passed a law that made it um, so that our local law enforcement can get fined $50,000 for cooperating with the FBI on gun crimes. You know, this is absolutely ridiculous. And it it ties our hands on what we can do locally to prevent horrific incidents like this. It also means that we have an obligation to be thinking differently about gun violence in particular. Knowing that you do have a big component taken out of your hands by the legislature, what would you do as board president and to implement your plan for public safety? What is your plan for public safety? The fact of the matter is, you know, we're a city right now that is spending over 50 percent of our budget on public safety in a given year. But we're not safe. We're not. So safe. how are you defining public safety in this case? Is it the entire department of entire that? Entire department okay. of public safety. So that's it, including it, corrections, it, police. Yes. Is building under public building, safety. Building, fire. Okay. Um, but, but even of that public safety budget, um, half of that is, is spent on police right now. And we have one of the highest staffed police departments per capita in the entire country. So the question is, if we have so many police, why are we not safer? And I think it comes down to a, a, a couple of things. First, we need to restructure our police department. It's a very top-heavy police department right now. Um, and we need to restructure so that there's more boots on the ground than we, we have right now. But the second thing we, we have to recognize is we have not been funding crime prevention in this city. You know, we need to be looking um, at, at, or we need to recognize that, you know, more than half the calls that go into 911 are actually not 
emergencies and are not things that really inv- need an officer to show up to. They're, they're issues evol- uh, involving drug usage or mental health episodes or somebody sleeping outside. And those need caseworkers and, and homeless outreach supports to, to come and work with those folks, not a police officer. And so what I want to see us do is build in the right professionals into city government to respond to these calls that are coming in um, so that we're not just taking a blanket approach um, to addressing these issues and creating this revolving door of folks that, you know, get locked up for petty uh, offenses, mostly related to being poor, and then right back out on the street again and never actually addressing uh, the reasons that folks are there in the first place. The, you know, this, the last thing that I'll say is we have to address violent crime in the city. And the mechanisms that we've been going to do that have not been working. What I'd like to see us do is bring in a program that was done in Richmond, California called Operation Peacemaker. In Operation Peacemaker, they started a fellowship program for folks who were at risk of committing gun crimes. So these were folks who had, you know, had a gunshot wound before or um, had maybe been convicted of a gun crime in the past. And they did a call in and said, you know, what has to happen for you to change the trajectory of your life? And they got these folks into this program. They paid them a monthly stipend to cover basic living expenses. If they needed child care, they got them that. If they needed an education or mental health help or substance use, help. They they got them all those supports. And in year one, they saw a 33% reduction in violent crime. And over five years, they saw a 55% reduction. You know, and it wasn't an expensive program. They spent $500,000 in their first year. So these are the types of things that I think we need to be looking at because they work. And we need to be focused more on crime prevention than we, we have been. Where do SLMPD officers fit into your plan? So as I said a minute ago, you know, one of the things we have to do is make sure that we are using our police resources effectively. That means we have to restructure the police department to make sure that we do have more boots on the ground and and less folks, you know, on desk jobs. But we also need to be getting a lot of things off of our officers' plates. Their job should be responding to violent crime. But it's hard to do that when they're getting called to be, you know, the mediator between, you know, petty neighbor disputes and um, getting calls when somebody is sleeping outside or somebody's, you know, passed out from drug usage. Like officers don't need to respond to those types of, of calls. And if we get the right professionals to respond to those calls, it actually frees up police resources to be focused on violent crime, which is really where they should be focusing their time and efforts. So. My brother-in-law is a cop in Belleville, Illinois, and I'm sitting here thinking if I sold that plan to him that, hey, you would have more time to, you know, go be a cop and go deal with the objectively bad guys, that would make sense to him and probably a lot of other police officers. Where is the disconnect between how you are explaining this plan to me, which makes sense to me, and kind of how it's understood in the broader community? You know, I think everybody is always reticent to change, right? When you've been in a system doing things a certain way for a long time, sometimes it's hard to envision doing things differently. And I think if we're also honest, we've historically had leadership from our police union, you know, namely Jeff Rorta, who has been very divisive and, and you know, 
worked in direct opposition to any kind of rethinking about the way we address public safety or even creating a more uh, just and accountable police force. I'm, I'm glad that he's no longer the, the union rep, the business manager there. I think that that will go a long way to starting to improve some police community relations and hopefully get us to a place where we we are committed to uh, a public safety system that, that actually works um, and does free up our police resources to do the things that they were trained to do. And we'll be right back after this quick break. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Alderwoman Megan Green. And part of the reason that you are running for this office right now is, as you mentioned at the top, federal indictments, resignations, guilty pleas over the incentive process in St. Louis. Do you think that says more about the process or the people? I think it says more about the process. I mean, we've had a process that lends itself to this um, because there's been no strategic process for the entire city. It's sort of been the Wild West. And and so there's different standards in different areas of the city and depending upon which alderman you're working with. I mean, I think we have to change that. We need a citywide plan for development. It needs to be clear about what level of incentive uh, projects can qualify for in each area of the city. You know, it needs to be clear about uh, if there's affordable housing set aside requirements. You know, what are those requirements? If there are other community benefits that are uh, required as a part of these projects, whether it's a payment back to St. Louis Public School District or uh, infrastructure improvements that are happening around a, a new project, I think that needs to be standardized and detailed up front, and it needs to be codified by the Board of Aldermen so everybody is playing by the same rules. Do you think developers would be open to the kind of things you're talking about putting into law, to knowing, is is the issue that they don't know what they're supposed to do or they just don't want to have these community benefit agreements, for example? I think it depends upon which developers. You know, most of the the developers I I hear from, I'll I'll say the, the good developers, the ones that are really trying to, I think, create good, you know, products for the, the community, they want standardized processes. They're not opposed to, you know, inclusionary zoning that would require some affordable housing and market rate developments there or other public benefits. They just want to know what's required of them. Um, and they're not opposed to scaling back the amount of tax incentives that we've been uh, given out either. They want to know. You know, they, and they want to know that everybody's playing by the same rules. And, and I think that's especially important for smaller developers who often feel kind of locked out of the process because they don't have the means to, to send a lobbyist down to City Hall to negotiate the tax deal on their behalf, right? So a standardized process, I think, helps level the playing field for, you know, developers who or anybody looking to invest in our city. The board did try back in 2018, there was at least a resolution that set recommendations for smaller projects. Um, How has that effort on the smaller development side been working? Mostly that has been working um, because SLDC, St. Louis Development Corporation, um, has been pretty good about not forwarding a project that doesn't align with those goals. Um, but the the issue is, you know, the bulk of the projects that are more controversial, the ones that are causing us to forego the most tax revenue, are the bigger projects. Those are the projects over a million dollars. And that's why we need a standardized process that's clear uh, for projects over a million dollars, just like we have for projects under a million. 
Would you block some areas of the city entirely from receiving incentives, or would you want it to be based on what the developer is bringing to the area? You know, I I think it's a balance, right? Um, You know, I'm not opposed to incentives going in more stable areas if there are public benefits attached to them, right? We we know that the most stable communities are ones that are socioeconomically integrated. And we should be requiring uh, inclusionary zoning as a part of any new market rate development. But I also understand that affordable housing is expensive. And so, you know, a, a tax incentive, a, a tax abatement may be necessary if we want to get in some of those public benefits. Uh, but I'm okay with that if we're actually meeting a public good. What I'm not okay with is when we continue to just build luxury housing in the most stable and affluent areas of our city and then give max, max, you know, tax breaks to these developers. You know, that's money that we're foregoing that would otherwise go to fund public education, that would fund city services. And when we aren't delivering city services at the ways that we need to, because we can't pay people what they're worth to come and work for the city, you know, we really got to be capturing as much tax revenue as we can. There is, what, about $200 million left in the American Rescue Plan Act that the city can spend. Some of that has been pledged by the mayor to North St. Louis. But how would you want to see the Board of Aldermen allocate those resources? No, I think we have to be more strategic than we have been. You know, the, the first round of ARPA funds that we spent really ended up sort of being this hodgepodge of, you know, anything and everything that, that folks wanted to see put into that bill. Um, but there are some things in particular that that I think we need to focus on. One, um, benefits for to attract and retain employees. You know, we are down almost a thousand employees in city government right now. It's, and this is across all this departments. This is across all departments. You know, and you look at some of the, the wages that are being paid. You know, our refuse drivers in some cases can make double if they go to the county, right? Um, our 911 operators are grossly underpaid. And so it's really hard to attract and retain uh, employees. But we also recognize that this is one-time money. So, you know, it, it it's not going to be there in perpetuity. So what can we do with it to, you know, entice people to come and work for us today? I think, you know, looking at some early childhood subsidies, you know, child care uh, or lack of affordable child care is keeping a lot of folks out of the workforce right now because it's cheaper to stay home than it is to pay for child care. Doing a home buyer assistance program, which is something that you know, the city has done in the past where maybe a ten or $15,000, you know, down payment assistance then uh, helps folks come and want to work for the city while also, uh, you know, helping them with home ownership. I think there's a variety of different employee benefits like that that we could use the ARPA money for to help build the workforce that we need to provide quality city services. The more intriguing pot of money to me is whatever the city gets from the RAM settlement, because that is in perpetuity, no restrictions on it. How would you want to see whatever the settlement ends up bringing to the city? 
So there's two things that are a priority to me. One, I think we need to set a portion of it aside as almost like an endowment for the city. Um, what I would like to see that go for is a maintenance fund. You know, we're really great at often building new infrastructure in the city and then not maintaining it. And so then we get to a place where right now the city has $500 million in deferred maintenance. Um, setting aside a portion of the funds to just fund, you know, maintenance of projects on an annual basis, I I think makes uh, good sense long term for the city. The second thing I would like to see us invest in is a robust early care and education program. The city has lost 40% of its school age population in the last 20 years. You cannot build a city without families. You know, we have to be attracting and retaining families in this city. And it starts with early care and education. It's extremely expensive to afford quality early childhood education. Um, and it's keeping a lot of folks out of the workforce. If we can invest in that from uh, a really young age, then we're setting our kids up for success into the future. And it's going to pay dividends. You know, We know that for every dollar that is invested in early care and education, uh, communities get a $11 back in return on investment. You know, early care and education programs would allow us to do early testing for, uh, you know, developmental delays, for lead poisoning. And, and we know that when kids are exposed to lead when they're young, they're more likely to have violent tendencies or lack of emotional control when they get to be adults. So I think it's, it's one of the best things that we could do with that money. And it would make an impact for a generation and beyond. You mentioned at the top of this podcast that whoever is elected to this post will have four months to help the board transition to 14 members. What is it going to need to function successfully as a 14-member organization? You know, I think that aldermen should become full-time. You know, I am the only candidate in this race that is committed to serving in the office of the presidency full time. And I think that that's really important. Would you bump the salary up then? I think that the salary needs to to increase. You know, the last time that I think the Board of Aldermen had a salary increase was, I think, in the 80s. So what what do you guys make right now? As, uh, it's like 35, 37,000. OK, OK. Yes. Um, and so I think full time raise the salary and we, we need staff. Right. Uh, right now, the board only has one attorney for 29 older people to help write legislation. That is not how you create a functional legislative body. I mean, I think each alderman needs to have a legislative aid like they they do in the state legislature to and the help, county too. And the I county think, yeah. too to to help us craft and research legislation. And we need a constituent service person um, so that, you know, when we have double the area of folks that are calling us about overflowing dumpsters and potholes, that we have the capacity to field all those calls and help people navigate their way through city government. And I think also you're most likely going to have to cut the number of committees because otherwise it's everybody gets a committee chair. <laughs> yes, the committees are going to have to be downsized. I mean, our, our rules as a board of aldermen are going to have to be completely changed because so much of it is based upon having 28 wards. I mean, ward capital, um, ward capital, when that tax was passed, was to be evenly distributed ag across 28 wards. Well, 28 wards no longer exist. And so, uh, so we have to be figuring out, you know, all of these things that are in pre-existing city code that are reliant on 28 wards and updating our city code to reflect 14 wards. 
How do you, given the problems that you talked about earlier in the podcast with salaries and benefits for being a city employee, get the quality people into the roles that you're talking about for the board? I mean, we have to become more competitive with our salaries across the board. And, you know, we did just have a pay study that was done for the entirety of city government. And, um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm very optimistic for our new personnel director who's, I think, coming in and, and hitting the ground running to to fix some of those salary disparities that we have in city government. But I think it also goes back to, you know, what other employee benefits can can we give to folks? You know, whether it's, you know, health savings accounts and elder savings accounts, if it if it's child care supports, if it's housing supports. I mean, I think that there's a lot of tools at our disposal um, that we can give to folks up front for them to come and work for the city. And and, you know, in a, a, you know, a condition of that would then be that they have to work for the city for five years or, or 10 years. Would you want the city to lift the residency requirement then? I think, you know, residency requirement was just on the ballot and it did not pass. Um, it it's been on the ballot many times over the years. And so it, the and city it, kept the residency requirement just so people yes. understand what it means by didn't pass. Yes. So they, they decided to keep the residency requirement. And I, I, you know, the thing that I hear from folks about why they vote no is concerns about then not having police that are representative of our city policing our city. And when we already have strained relationships between um, our community and, and police, does that get better if we then have folks coming in from Jefferson County or Baldwin who are policing our city and maybe don't understand, you know, the, the culture and the characteristics of folks that, that live in the city? So I, you know, I think the thing that I would be okay looking at is, is what does it look like to raise the residency requirement or eliminate the residency requirement for anybody except our police force. There is going to be a lot of jockeying in these last four, five, six months of the legislative session as people try to figure out what the heck they are going to do, if they're going to run, if they're going to look for another job. How do you keep your colleagues focused on the business of the city and doing all the things they have to do to transition to a 14-member organization? I think you have to lead by example. You know, we've historically had a board of aldermen that has been run on, you know, for lack of a better term, power politics, sort of a divide and conquer and and keep the board chaotic so that really nothing of substance gets done. And uh, and I think the reason the board was that way is because that's what the leadership wanted it to be. But I think with different leadership that's saying, hey, these are the things that we are committed to as a board. Right. And these are the things that we're going to you know, focus to get done in these next four months and making sure that people are assigned to committees in ways to promote that, um, you know, that agenda getting done while also ensuring that we are creating committees that are representative of the entire city and not just certain factions. Should the Board of Aldermen get back to meeting in person on Fridays? I definitely think that the Board of Aldermen um, should have already been meeting in, in person. And, you know, I understand that there are some some health concerns, um, some, you know, challenges with, with 
vaccination and and you know some some folks that I think are immunocompromised that I think we need to take into account. Um, but we've had proposals given to the board already to to create a hybrid system, and I think we need to move forward with that and get it up and running um, so that if somebody is sick or immunocompromised, they can still participate, um, but that the bulk of us can be in person. I heard an interesting suggestion, too, actually, from your opponent, credit where credit is due. If the concerns is about ventilation in the board chambers, how many other city buildings are there where you can go spread out and yes. are better ventilated? Yes. I mean, we, we have a plethora of city buildings and I think other places that we can meet if if we you know really can't meet in the chambers. Uh, I think it's just a matter of will to to want to come back in person. So I'm committed to getting us back in person. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. I'm on Twitter at rlipman. That's two P's and two N's. Megan, where can people find your campaign on the variety of social media platforms? So uh, website is green4stl.com. Is that the number uh, or spelled out? Either or will get you there. <laughs> and your tech person is very smart to do yes. that. Um, on uh, Instagram, I'm green with the number four. STL on Twitter. I am at Megan Aaliyah, which is M-E-G-A-N-E-L-L-Y-I-A. And on uh, Facebook, you can find me at slash green for STL, all spelled out. Until next time, so long.